Well, based on what Mike shared earlier, hopefully everybody's prepared to stop, drop, and roll if necessary. Hopefully it won't be necessary, but um, just, you know, be, be vigilant. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry for that. Um, if I were to ask you <clears throat> what your favorite topic is in the Bible, um, what, would you, what would you say? You'd probably say something along the lines of, like, how much God loves us, um, maybe God's grace, maybe some of you would say God's mercy. Uh, if I asked you, you know, what would you like to hear a sermon about, you might say um, some of those kinds of things. What, what you probably would not say uh, is church discipline, and that happens to be our passage today in Matthew chapter 18. <laughs> so, so buckle in for everybody's favorite topic today, uh, Matthew 18, uh, starting in verse 15. So, so far, as we uh, have made our way through Matthew 18 uh, in Matthew's gospel, we've looked at, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, humility as the way of the Christian uh, in the first six verses. Uh, We looked at in verses 7 to 9 how we're instructed to deal with our own sin, taking our own sin uh, very seriously and not not providing for any sort of temptation in our life as much as possible uh, for us. Uh, we looked at, in verses 10 to 14, um, just the, God's ideal of, of pursuing those who wander. Uh, today, we're going to look at how to handle sin within the community of faith. And then the next passage, um, as a little spoiler uh, for next week, uh, how to deal with forgiveness among those who have experienced God's forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness w- uh, towards one another for those who experience God's forgiveness. Now, what's interesting about today's passage, or one thing that's interesting about uh, today's passage, is that Jesus is talking about discipline within the community of faith, within the church, really before the church came into existence. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Right? The church doesn't come into existence as we know it until uh, the book of Acts. And so here's Jesus, kind of prior to the New Testament church, Uh, forming, talking about uh, discipline and talking about taking matters if they get to a certain point before the church. I don't know what to do with that, but but just an interesting thing uh, to think about as we uh, get into our passage today. And in this passage, Jesus outlines really a a process uh, for dealing with sin. Now, we, we call this church discipline, but I don't know if that's the best phrase to use. Um, when you think of church discipline, what do you think of? Maybe some of you have, have seen it go bad. Uh, maybe some of you have experienced it going bad. Maybe some of you, uh, you have kind of these negative connotations when you hear the phrase church discipline, like maybe you're cringing right now as I keep saying that over and over again. Um, so, so maybe there's a better thing that we can call it, and, and I'm not, we're not going to solve that mystery today, but, but just know that, that as we go through this, um, Jesus' ideal is not necessarily punitive. Jesus' ideal is rest, restorative, right? not punitive. And, and, and if you're like me, probably what you've seen uh, in past church experiences, if you've been a part of the church uh, for any amount of time, may, maybe you've seen this process undertaken with kind of punity in mind, like the idea is to, to punish the evildoer. And what we're hopefully going to see today uh, is the, for the process that Jesus outlines is not punitive, but it's restorative. And the idea is not necessarily for rest, retribution or that kind of a thing, but the idea uh, that we see here today is, is God's heart for restoration of the sinner, 
And really this gets to the heart of the gospel because when Jesus showed up on earth, he didn't show up to punish the evildoers necessarily. Right? He, he showed up to pursue those who have wandered uh, and to call those who have wandered into right relationship with him. And, and so just as a backdrop, as we talk about this idea of church discipline, whether there's a better thing to call it or not, um, the, the backdrop to all of this is God's heart of pursuit to those who, who sin and those who wander. And so keep that in mind as we get into this uh, today. So let's read the passage, and then we'll unpack it. So Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on anything, uh, agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So can I break this up into a couple of parts here? So one, kind of the, the process that, that Christ has outlined uh, for discipline within the church, and then uh, three very misunderstood statements that follow that, that hopefully we're going to bring some clarity to uh, today as we unpack uh, this passage. So here, uh, in the first two verses, or first three verses, 15 to 17, uh, Jesus outlines the process for dealing with sin within the community of faith. And again, our backdrop, we have to consider how Christ himself dealt with sin. So more on that uh, in a moment. But he just tells him right out of the gate, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, I think generally, we don't like confrontation, do we? And so we tend to avoid this step of the process. But I think if we were engaging in this step of the process the way that Christ has envisioned here, 95% of what we might call church discipline would just get handled right here. Um, we are imperfect people. And it's not necessarily a matter of if we sin against one another, it's, it's when we sin against one another, right? It's, it's going to happen. It's almost a foregone conclusion that imperfect sinners are going to uh, offend one another within a community of faith, right? Um, maybe you, again, have experienced it. Maybe you've seen it happen. And, and so we're told that when that happens, when, when your brother, your brother or sister, when a person commits a sin against someone else, we're not told to sit and stew on it. We're not told here to wait for them to recognize the wrong that they have done and to come to you. Right? I, I dealt with a guy years ago who uh, was sinned against very grievously in a church. Like it, was, it was kind of a big deal. And his attitude uh, in this deal was that anytime people want to come to me and ask for my forgiveness, they're welcome to. And, and that, that's a clear violation of the process that Jesus has outlined for us here. If you're the one who's been sinned against, it's incumbent upon you to go to that person, your brother or your sister. And, and just the language of brother here, it, 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 it implicates that, that this is people within the community of faith. We're not talking about you know, people outside of the church necessarily in this passage. We're talking about people that we call brother, that we call sister, fellow believers, fellow followers of Christ. And if one of them happens to sin against you, 
Jesus says, you go to them and deal with it between you and them alone, right? He, he doesn't say, go tell everybody and ask, you know, 20 people, hey, what do you think about this, right? The idea is to keep the circle small. We're, we're pretty good sometimes at making the circle bigger than it needs to be, right? Someone has offended you, they've, they've committed a sin against you, um, and, and we tend to go to everybody but that person. Hey, do you know what so-and-so did to me? What do you think, how do you, how do you think I should handle it? Maybe we even do it kind of under the guise of, of seeking counsel. Nothing wrong with seeking counsel, but let's be real. Some, sometimes we're not seeking counsel when we go to other people and say, what do you think about what this person did? Right? Sometimes we're just wanting to malign that person. Sometimes we're wanting to justify ourselves and our own feelings of offense. Right? And we have to be real with ourselves about that. And that's not what Jesus has in mind here. Jesus is talking about dealing with something quickly, dealing with the thing uh, privately. Uh, if it, and that may not always be possible, and the process continues if it's not possible to handle it privately. But if we're doing this the way that Jesus has in mind, I think that we'll take care of most things right here before it escalates beyond um, you know, what we're going to look at in the process. And so I would just ask you to consider if someone has sinned against you, uh, as a mature follower of Christ, it's, it's on you uh, to initiate that conversation. Now, it's worth noting that simply because you're offended by another person, that's not the same thing as that person sinning against you, right? We don't have time to get into that today, but just know that, that your offense does not necessarily equal sin on the part of another. It can, but, but simply because you're offended doesn't mean that you've been sinned against, and we have to have wisdom to work through that and, and figure that out. But here we're told, and we're reminded even in the language, that, that we're dealing with brothers and sisters, right? We're dealing with our, our family, right? We're dealing with our family, and when they sin against you, uh, that you would go to them and deal with it privately, and the hope would be that they would listen to you, that they would hear you. Now, if you're the one who has committed a sin against another and someone comes to you and says, you've committed this sin against me, it's pretty easy for, for you or for us to take offense at that, right? Maybe sometimes we don't always realize that we've sinned against somebody. Maybe sometimes we do realize it. Sometimes it's intentional, but maybe sometimes we don't even realize that we've committed a sin against somebody. And as a mature follower of Christ, it would be up on you to hear your brother or your sister when they come to you and say that you've committed this sin against me rather than to get defensive, right? Because we, we, can, we tend to do that. And so if we're handling this as mature followers of Christ, both as the one who's had a sin committed against them and the one who's committed the sin, we can handle most of it right here before it escalates. And we can be better for it. We can be closer as brothers and sisters in the fellowship when we're able to work through these things with maturity and being willing to hear one another out. Jesus tells us if this happens that, that we've gained we've gained a brother, we've gained a brother or a sister in doing this. But in verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, Jesus is pulling from the Old Testament law here in Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19.15 says that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence 
of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So this was a long-standing part of uh, just the Jewish culture and the way that they did things. And even part of our culture today, if a case you know, goes to court, for example, this isn't necessarily a one-to-one correlation, but let's say a case makes it to court, it's common to have multiple witnesses in a court case. Right? Court cases are not decided on one person's word versus another person's word. And so kind of baked into even our legal system is that, that two or three witnesses or a multitude of witnesses help establish what's true. And so if the first step doesn't work, if, if you've been sinned against and you go to this brother or sister and say you've committed this sin against me, and they don't hear you, they refuse to hear you, then the second step is that you would take two or three others. And again, the, the purpose of two or three others isn't to gang up on a person. The purpose of taking two or three witnesses is not to strong arm this person into believing something that they don't believe. It's not that at all. The purpose is to establish what's true. And again, we're, we're talking about in our context here, the community of faith. We're talking about um, mature followers of Christ who are able to, because of their allegiance to Christ and because of their submission to the word of Christ, that they're going to be able to uh, discern what is and what isn't sinful behavior. And so if the first step doesn't work and you're not heard privately, then you would go back to this person with two or three witnesses. And the hope, again, is not punitive. The hope is restorative. The hope is that this person would hear maybe two or three other people who are outside of, you know, directly outside of the situation to say, yes, there's something to this. Please hear us. If he refuses to listen to them, verse 17 then tell it to the church. Now, this is where church discipline often goes bad, is is the point where we bring it before the church. Um, I can think of a couple of instances uh, in my church experience and in my life. One, one, when I was a teenager, and I would say I didn't really understand all of this very well, Uh, and then another, you know, as an adult and having a better understanding of Scripture, um, just these two instances just pop into my mind when I think of church discipline. And the first one, uh, when I was a teenager, we had uh, a guy in our church who it was discovered that he was having an affair uh, on his wife. And they went through the process and it escalated to the point of bringing it before the church. And what ended up happening is that this was a, it was a punitive kind of a measure. And, and I, think, I think just at that time, looking back on it, I don't, I don't think that the church understood the idea of, of the restoration of the sinner. I think this was done out of offense of the sin that was committed. And the call to the church was to, to shun this person. If you see them downtown, if you're on the sidewalk and you see them cross the street, don't, don't talk to them and just to completely shun them. And, and even as a kid, not understanding this, that just seemed a bit odd to me, like out of, out of you know, not, not uh, lining up with the character of Christ. Right, and and that's what happened. And to this day, uh, I mean, this was this was a while ago, and and I think to this day, to, to my knowledge, this person isn't part of the church anymore. And 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 I just wonder sometimes how how much does this play into this person not being part of the church anymore? I, I don't know. Um, the second instance that I think of, um, we had a lady in our church 
years ago, uh, not in this church, a different church, uh, who uh, came under church discipline for neglecting her kids. And it was a pretty serious, like it was a pretty serious kind of neglect of the kids. And um, it escalated to the point of bringing it before the church as well. And this time it seemed to, to be a little more in line with Scripture. Still an awkward situation, awkward for the church, awkward for the person. Um, and this person didn't see the issue that came before the church. And Jesus goes on in, in verse 17 that if they refuse to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And this is where the first example I showed, the thought was like, well, nobody likes Gentiles and tax collectors, and they, you know, we don't spend time with those people, and so you know, shun the evildoer. Um, in the second instance, it was, it was more, um, you know, the idea was more restoration in the second instance that, that I uh, shared with you. And um, it still, I would say, didn't go well. Uh, hard thing, it went poorly. Uh, as they tend to do. But I think we misunderstand this idea of what does it mean to treat somebody as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, if you know anything about Jewish history, you know that like that was an insult to, to call somebody a Gentile or a tax collector. There was no love lost between the Jews and the Gentiles and the tax collectors, right? Um, it, it was an insult to be considered Gentile or tax collector. But when you think about Jesus, who did Jesus spend his time with? Jesus hung out with the Gentiles, and Jesus hung out with the tax collectors. He shared meals with the Gentiles and with the tax collectors. Jesus treated the Gentile and the tax collector as somebody who was in need of having right relationship with God. And I think as we consider what this passage is saying, that, that when, when church discipline escalates to the point of, of bringing somebody's sin before the church... Um, we have to consider how Jesus thought about Gentiles and tax collectors. And when Jesus encountered Gentiles and tax collectors, he didn't cross the street to avoid them, right? When Jesus hung out with Gentiles and tax collectors, he, he wouldn't call them that as an insult to them. Jesus looked at Gentiles and tax collectors as people who were lost in their sin and people who, who needed to be loved by God, people who were, in fact, loved by God. So, so what does that mean in terms of church discipline when something escalates before the church? Jesus takes t sin seriously, and we have to consider how seriously Jesus took sin. What, what length did Jesus go to to deal with sin? He died. He gave his life so that he could conquer sin, and then he could conquer death. And so that tells us that sin to God is a big deal. Right? It's a big deal. Yes, God loves us. Yes, He's merciful. Yes, He's gracious. Yes, He's forgiving. But He takes sin so seriously that He sent His one and only Son to give His life as a ransom for you and me to pay the penalty for the sin that we've accrued. So sin is a big deal. Right? It, it matters. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to sweep under the carpet. It's something to deal with. Jesus dealt with sin head on. And what we're seeing in this passage is that he's calling us as Christians to deal with sin head on. If you remember a couple of passages back, 
when Matthew was unpacking the idea of, of temptations to sin, the, the call of Jesus was if, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. These are pretty extreme measures in our, in our fight with sin. And so we have to consider that as we look at our passage today and how we deal with sin within the church. The church ought to look different than the world, right? We ought to look different inside here than they do out there in how we deal with sin and issues of morality. At the same time, one of the defining characteristics of the church that Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John is that the way that the world will know who the members of the church are, it's by the way that they love one another, right? Not by the way that they point the finger at one another, not by the way they strong arm one another, not by the way they shun one another, not by the way they look down or judge one another, but by the way they love one another. And we have to consider this as a backdrop to what Jesus is telling us here. The way that we deal with sin in the church is driven primarily by love. The love that we as believers have one another. Again, there might be a better thing to call this than church discipline, and I don't know today what that would be. But this process that Jesus outlined is not about revenge. It's not about restitution. And it might surprise you to know that it's not even about justice. And I'm not saying that God isn't about justice. God, God is just. Right? God determines what is and isn't just. But what Jesus is unpacking for us here is not even about justice. It's not, even, it's not about getting back something that was lost in the committing of sin towards us. It's not about that. What Jesus is talking about here is gaining a brother or gaining a brother or a sister. It's, it's restorative. And again, in order to understand this, we have to look at how Jesus dealt with sin himself. Jesus came to deal with sin so that us sinners who had broken relationship with God could have that brokenness fixed so that we could be restored to a right relationship with our Creator. That's, that's how Jesus dealt with sin. Our Bibles would look quite differently if Jesus showed up and said, I got a bone to pick with you people. Or if Jesus showed up saying, you owe me something, which he had every right to do that and more. But he didn't. He showed up driven by love so that he could take upon himself your sin and my sin and all of the sins of everybody that's ever lived, past, present, and future, that as he hung on the cross, that he would die taking upon the wrath of God for all of that sin. And while doing so, he would cry out to his Father, forgive them, forgive these sinners, for they know not what they do. That's the backdrop to discipline within the church. If the person refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, that, that person, there, there's a disconnect with a person who says, I love Jesus and I'm a follower of Christ, but walks in willing and unrepentant sin. Now, what we're not talking about here is, is the daily struggle that you and I have with sin, right? We, there's not a moment that goes by that we're not 
thinking a sinful thought or doing a sinful thing, right? If you have a moment that goes by where that's not you, you're better than me, right? Sin is our nature. It's our human nature. And so we're not talking about this daily struggle of, you know, kind of good versus evil and being pulled in directions and, and, you know, fighting uh, the good fight. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a person here who has been confronted in their sin, something that's clearly sin, and they refuse to hear the one-on-one, they refuse to hear the two or three witnesses, they refuse to hear the church, and they dig their heels in and say, I'm not in sin about this. Or even if they admit this is wrong and they're unrepentant about it. There's a disconnect between someone who professes to be a Christian yet walks in willing, unrepentant sin. Do you understand the difference between that versus just our daily fight with sin? Right? When we're fighting the fight, that, that's good. Right? It shows that, that the Spirit is alive in us when we have fight against sin. But when we just give into it and there's no fight, and not, not even a desire to fight or not even a desire to repent, that, that's what's in view here in putting that person out of the church. And another kind of dirty word that we don't like to talk about is excommunication. To, to cut that person off from the fellowship. And again, this is not a punitive step. It's not about punishing the wrongdoer. This is about restoration. And I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes to them about uh, a man in the congregation within the church who was having sexual relationship with his father's wife, likely the guy's stepmother, not his mom. But either way, it's not a good thing, a reprehensible act. And Paul writes to them and tells them that no such behavior should happen among professing Christians. Again, this is not like a daily fight or a struggle with sin. This, this is a giving in to sin for someone who names the name of Christ. And Paul's instructions to them in 1 Corinthians 5, 5 is that you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And if we just stop there, that sounds punitive. That sounds like a punishment. But he doesn't stop there. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So even in the excommunication, when things escalate to that point, the point isn't punitive. The point is so that this person may ultimately come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ on the day of the Lord. Restoration. Being brought back into right relationship with God. And sometimes we have to take extreme measures of cutting a person off. We don't, we don't like to do that. It's weird when it happens. It's awkward when it happens. It often doesn't go well when it happens. But there's something about being cut off from the fellowship that hopefully, hopefully will cause this person to think, wow, what, what am I doing? <laughs> what is this? Like if we really are family, if we're brothers and sisters and things escalate in a person's sin to the point where they have to be put outside the family, again, not, not as a punishment, but as kind of a last ditch effort so that they might hear the truth and that they might repent, These are extreme measures. And these are extreme measures prescribed to us by Christ. So as awkward and as weird as they can be, the question comes not only to us as pastors, but to you as the church. Do we believe what Jesus is saying here? 
do we believe that this is good and that this is right? If things ever escalate to this point where we have to bring something to the church, we, we should all have a little bit of fear and trepidation that we're getting it right. Right? We should all be humble and, and concerned with, like, are we, are we doing what Christ would have us do because this is no small thing. Something else that is long-standing in Jewish culture, Leviticus chapter 19, you don't have to turn there, but Leviticus 19, 17 to 18 tells us this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Long, long-standing part of, of Jewish culture and Jewish law that these things are not about vengeance, that they shouldn't boil up in us hate. Nowhere in the Bible are we ever commanded to confront one another out of our offense. That's not in the Bible. You can look for it all you want. You won't find, you won't find a Bible verse that says it's okay to confront somebody in your offense. The problem is, is that, you know, we often lead with our offense. And our offense is often the thing that drives us to confrontation, right? We avoid confrontation often until we're offended. <laughs> and then our offense pushes us often in a moment of haste, you know, to confront a person or a circumstance. And the Bible does not advocate for that being okay. We're reminded in Leviticus 19 to love our neighbor as ourself, right? And you might ask the question, well, who is our neighbor? Jesus answers that elsewhere, and the short of it is, like, everybody's your neighbor, <laughs> right? The, the point is not to figure out who, who can I love and who can I hate. Like, everybody's your neighbor. <laughs> love everybody, right? And let love be the thing that leads you as you confront sin, particularly within the church and particularly among fellow believers. Now, a flip side of that, Titus 3.10 tells us, for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. I don't know that, that this is totally what Jesus is getting at here, but, but there is consideration to be given towards the person within the church who, through their sinfulness, is simply here to stir the pot and to divide. The Bible gives a very short leash for people like that. Warn them once, warn them twice, have nothing to do with them. Put, put them out, right? Put them outside of the family if they're here to cause division within the family. And so we see this four-step process outlined by Christ. The first step in the process is that one-on-one, -on -one, if you've been sinned against, that you would go to that person and you would tell it to them. And the hope and the prayer is that they would hear you and that the matter would just be resolved right then and there. And if we let love lead us, if we let humility lead us, there's a, there's a greater chance that this is going to go well than if we let our offense lead us. If you let your offense lead you in this almost guaranteed it's not going to go well. If that person doesn't hear you in that one-on-one -on -one matter, take two or three other people, two or three trusted other people who are maybe not directly affected by the situation, but two or three other brothers and sisters, 
that you would go to this person. And again, the hope and the prayer is that they would hear. If they don't hear the one, maybe they would hear the two or three and that the matter would get resolved. But if it doesn't get resolved, then it's time to tell it to the church. And again, the hope and the prayer is that the person, if they haven't heard the one, if they haven't heard the two or three, maybe they would hear the congregation. Maybe they would hear the church as it's brought before the church and that they would repent. But if they don't, then there's the fourth and final step of excommunication, putting them outside of the family. Again, not as a punishment, but as a move that would help them to see that by this thing in their life, this hopefully important and valued thing in their life being cut off, that they would see their sin and that they would come to repentance. And as the church were to treat them as Gentiles and tax collectors, which doesn't mean to shun them. I don't think that means that at all. But that we would treat them as people who are lost and given over to this world in their sin, blinded as the Bible tells us. Right? The God of this age, 1 Corinthians tells us, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And that we would pray for them, that we wouldn't harbor anger or bitterness at them, that we would desire to see them repent and be restored to the family and brought back into right relationship first and foremost with God, but also with the family of God, and that we would take that seriously. <clears throat> That's church discipline as outlined by Christ. If, if you can think of a better name for it, I'm all ears. <laughs> we can talk afterwards, <clears throat> but this is what Christ has outlined for us. 1 Corinthians 5, chapter, nine, or chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need not to go out into the world at all. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reveler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil, evil person from among you. And again, this sounds like it might be punitive. But Paul, in, in agreeance with Jesus, as, as we said before, that, that the measures that seem punitive are about the restoration of one, the saving of one's soul in the day of the Lord. And sometimes to do that out of love, we have to give people up to the destruction of their flesh so that they could have the salvation of their soul. Consider that as we deal with these matters within the church. Now we get into three statements that Jesus makes that have been misunderstood and misapplied uh, by many. And these statements are this. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The, the misunderstanding of this statement assumes that the church is the ultimate authority. Now God has given authority to the church, but the church is not the ultimate authority. God is ultimate authority, right? But we've seen churches misuse and even abuse this statement in their assumption that the church has been given ultimate authority. Jesus goes on to say, again, if I say to you, if two, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
This is misunderstood as promoting a type of a prosperity theology, right? Those who, who have uh, a prosperity type of faith will lean on this verse and say, look, it's in the Bible. Two or three of us agree on anything. God will give us anything that we ask. If that's true, God is nothing more than a genie in a bottle that we just have to coax the right way, right? That, that's not what is being said here. This, this kind of a statement has given birth to a name it and a claim it type of a faith. And even it's assumed that this statement is primarily about prayer. The statement isn't primarily about prayer, and we'll see that more in a moment. And the third statement, for where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This gives us comfort, right? The misunderstanding here is that it only takes two or three people gathering anywhere for any reason to constitute a church that's blessed by God. And so I've heard people say that when I'm out in the woods with my buddies hunting, there's two or three of us and we're all Christians, well, God's with us. Now, God's everywhere, right? He's with us all the time, but that's not what this is saying, right? That's not what this is saying at all. This is not saying as long as you have two or three people that it constitutes a church gathering that God has blessed. It's not saying that at all. That's how it's been misunderstood. So I find it kind of helpful that maybe if we look at these three verses in, in reverse order, it might help paint a picture for us here. So if we go to verse 20, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We have to consider the context that we're in here. The the context, like this isn't just a random verse that we can pull out and make it say something that it doesn't say. What's the context that we're talking about here? Context is church discipline, right? So, So this, just based on where it is in the Bible, it can't mean that when two or three of you go hunting in the woods and you're all brothers, that, that, that it doesn't mean that. It can't mean that. This is talking about church discipline. So understood correctly, we see that when we gather in the name of Jesus, in other words, under His authority and according to Scripture, right? not just any gathering, but when we gather under His authority and according to His Word, that he promises us promises to be with us as we endeavor to restore the sinner to a right relationship with God and right relationship within the community of faith. That's the context. And that's how we would understand this verse properly. Moving our way up to the second statement again, I say to you, if two or three of you on earth agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And again, we have to consider the context. The context is not that we can pull this out and say God's the genie in the bottle that we just have to coax the right way. Even though this is a statement about prayer, it's not primarily about prayer. This isn't about how we pray. The context, again, is the restoration of the sinner, bringing them back to right relationship with God and right relationship within the community of faith. And so if two or three of us are gathered in this endeavor, submitted to Christ and His authority and submitted to the authority of the Word that He's given us, that when we ask Him to bless our efforts to restore the sinner, He's going to be with us. He's going to be with us. This is what it's saying here. This isn't just a carte blanche anything, whatever you ask. 
right? Maybe some of you have asked God that you could win the lottery, and, and you, then you wonder, like, why didn't, why didn't I win the lottery? <laughs> not what's being said here, not that kind of a thing. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Pastor David talked a couple of weeks ago about binding and loosing, so I'm not going to take a deep dive into that, but I'll say this, that when we administer the process of church discipline correctly, with humility, being led by love, remembering our own propensity to sin, and with a desire to restore and not to punish, with love for our brothers and sisters at the forefront, according to God's way and under his authority, the church has the authority given to it by God, so ultimately God's the possessor of the authority. But God has given, in this instance, the church, the authority to withhold or administer the forgiveness of sins as it's already been done in heaven. Let me clarify that just just a bit. As God's agents... Right here, and so this, so this is this requires everybody's participation. The church, he's he's not putting this solely on the shoulders of the pastors, although in a biblical church the, these things would these efforts would be led probably by the pastors, but but he's putting this on the shoulders of the church as a whole, who has love for one another, and who has humility, realizing each and every one of you that I have my own sin. Right? And, and depending on how things go, it could very well just as be, be me being brought before the church, right? that, that we would lead with humility and with love and a desire to restore the unrepentant sinner that we can declare the withholding of forgiveness or the administration of forgiveness because it's already been done in heaven. God has already determined right, forgiveness. Forgiveness is God's business, not my business or your business, right? It's God's business. And so this binding and loosing is really the church coming in line with what God has already done. When we do things the way that God has prescribed, then we do so with his blessing and under his authority. And so even though this this sounds difficult, and again, I know some of you may have had or witnessed bad experiences with this before, when we trust God enough to do things His way, the way that He prescribes, we can also trust that He's with us in that process, knowing that we're not perfect, knowing that that we may mess some things up and we may get some things wrong in it, right? We've seen it, we've experienced it. And so I would ask you to consider people in your life that have sinned against you and how, how you have handled those circumstances. And maybe, maybe you have somebody now that you need to confront. And maybe confront isn't the right word because that, that has a negative connotation to it as well. But maybe there's somebody that you, a conversation that you need to have for someone who's sinned against you. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Thessalonians 3.13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If someone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. I have nothing to do with him. He may, he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There's a difference, right? And we're pretty quick to regard people as enemies who have wronged us. 
but we're told right here that, that we should consider those who have wronged us as a brother or a sister or part of the family and that we should approach them not as an enemy but as family. One commentator had this to say, due to Christ's divine authority, divine because only God is omnipresent and only God can claim that sins on earth are forgiven in heaven and only in God's name are his people to gather, the church has been given authority to forgive, to receive back into fellowship or excommunicate or remove from fellowship. Yes, Emmanuel, Jesus, right? God with us, Emmanuel's ecclesia, which is Greek for church, has the Father's authority to forgive and to keep closed the door to life or open it. Jesus' lowly ecclesia or church has been given such authority. And so at the end of the day, we have to recognize, even though we don't like the word discipline, discipline is a blessing from God in the life of the Christian. Some have gone as far to call church discipline the third sacrament alongside baptism and communion. Now, I'm not sure I would go that far to call it the third sacrament, but just making the point that this, this is a vital part of the life of the church. And hopefully you get the point that it's a blessing when done rightly. Finally, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, reminds us that discipline is a good thing from God. The writer of Hebrews says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons or sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So we don't like the word discipline. We don't like the idea of discipline, but the Bible tells us that God disciplines those that he loves. And so if you're ever in the process of being disciplined as a follower of Christ, you can know that it's because God loves you, not because he's mad at you, right? We, we, we have a hard time understanding that. It's because God loves you, not because he's mad at you, right? That, that we would have any discipline in our life at all is proof that God loves us. Those of you who have raised kids understand that you discipline your kids, not because you're mad at them, but because you love them, because you want what's right for them and you want what's good for them, and sometimes that requires discipline for them to learn what they need to learn. We're, we're no different, and our Heavenly Father's no different in that way. Right? He's different from us in a lot of ways, but He disciplines those that He loves. And so again, as we consider this idea of church discipline, it's the loving way that God has given us to handle matters of sin within the church. Now, what we don't want to do is that when we're sitting here at lunch today, don't have your conversations across the table of, you wronged me, <laughs> right? This is not our license to just go, you know, pointing the finger at everybody, anybody and everybody that needs a finger pointed at them. But if you do find yourself feeling the need to have a conversation with somebody or, or multiple people, um, pray about it and ask God to give you humility, ask God to give you love for that person, Right, I remember who said it, but one pastor once said it's hard to be mad at somebody that you regularly pray for. Right, so if you find yourself being mad at somebody, right, start regularly praying for that person and pray that God would change your heart towards them. And that if, if a confrontation does need to happen, that you would be able to do it in humility, that you'd be able to do it in love, and trust that when we do things according to God's prescription, that, that whether they work out or not is, is less relevant but that we would trust God as things unfold however they unfold. And it's worth 
mentioning that if you do find yourself in a confrontation and it just doesn't go well and it's time to bring in the two or three, I know I speak for all the pastors when I say we're absolutely willing to help with these kinds of things uh, and give counsel and even you know talk to people uh, and that kind of a thing. So um, hopefully church discipline is a little bit less of our least favorite subject after today, um, but let's pray that God would help us as we endeavor to live this. Father, we're thankful uh, today. Thankful that you do discipline those that you love and thankful that you uh, have given a process by which that discipline can be achieved. And so I would pray um, for anybody, uh, any of us, myself included, uh, that you would help us to have hearts that, that look at those who have wronged us not as our enemies. You would help us to look at those who have wronged us as people who need Christ, who need the forgiveness of sins that, that we have experienced ourselves that you would give us uh, a supernatural love for the people that are hard to love in our lives, and that you would uh, help us in our endeavor uh, to fight sin and our battle, just with our own sin, but also uh, that we would help each other in our own battles with sin, and that we would have much grace and much mercy uh, for one another uh, as we just try more and more as time goes on uh, to get things right and to live more and more the way that you've called us to live. So thank you for this reminder today, and we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.